0: I am Jimbo Paris, and you are listening to The Jimbo Paris Show. Hello, this is Jimbo Paris here, and today we have Kathy McDaniel, and she's a very interesting woman. Very interesting about her. She's actually a woman that supposedly saw heaven. So let's bring her in and Let's see what she has to say. This is a very cool story. Again, this is a spirituality podcast, so she has a lot of great things to bring. I've heard of near-death experiences before, but this one just sounds super interesting. Let's talk to her. Hello, how are you doing today?
1: I'm doing fine, Jimbo. And you?
0: Good, good. Good. So can you please begin by giving me sort of a brief summary about yourself, who you are, what you're about, and sort of what your message is?
1: Well... By the time I was thirty, I had gotten had three children, one who died.
0: Oh, I'm so sorry.
1: Yeah, we've got a right nickel. That's very tough. It no. was. It was tough. It was the first time God ever said no to me, and it was a tough one. But after that, I, I got a divorce and found myself as a single mom with two kids. So I got a job as a bookkeeper and a property manager for a small company that had about a hundred rental units. So that was how I learned a trade. I worked there about uh, seven years and then I started my own property management company. During the 1989 earthquake where I lived in uh, Central California, our town was hit pretty hard and the whole downtown was destroyed and they put all the business owners in pavilions on, on parking lots and I managed all that too. That was a lot of work. I worked in property management for uh, 20 years. And when I turned 50, I sold my business. I decided I needed some peace and quiet after all those landlords and tenants. And my kids were in college, so why not? I moved to a great seaside community in Northern California and just loved it, just blissed out for about two years. And then my best friend, who I'd also been engaged to for seven years, but we decided to be friends, he called up and said he had leukemia and he needed two caregivers to go with him to Seattle so they could uh, try and cure him at a research hospital. And I said, sure, count me in. So I went up there and we were told it would take about two or three months. But after eight months of him getting better and worse and no sleeping and trauma, and he died. And he wasn't just a week before his 53rd birthday. So I was a physical and emotional wreck. I didn't know quite what to do with myself and picked up a flu that was going around, which turned into pneumonia, which turned into ARDS, which is acute respiratory distress syndrome, which is also called lung failure. They got me to the hospital. They put me on a ventilator and into a drug-induced coma. Uh, The doctor said, don't worry, you won't remember a thing. We give you this white amnesia. You'll just just go to sleep. And then when you're better, hopefully, you'll wake up. Well, that's not what happened. I woke up, but I was in a completely dark place. And after that, it kind of morphed into this very strange landscape. And I soon figured that I was in a dangerous place. I did not feel dead through this whole time. I just felt like it was me and I was still alive. I was just in this dangerous place, which was hell. That tragic tragedy story that that whole thing's in the book in great detail. But I did get to go to heaven for just a blast, love and light and the whole bit. There was my friend who had passed away the month before. And he told me I had too much left to do and that I had to go back. And I said, no, <laughs> and I, I got dumped unceremoniously back into my poor ravaged body. And 20 years later, I finally got the courage and the resources to write my memoir and uh, it includes my hell and heaven story, of course. And uh, now I spend most of my time on podcasts and radio shows uh, spreading my message, which is what I was sent back to do. Because once I get it all done, I get to go back home.
0: That's an excellent story. You're definitely a very strong person. And how do you think you cultivated that disposition? And after going through all this, what were the steps to healing and becoming the person you are now? Please let me know.
1: It, It took a good 10 years before I found any other people that had had my experience. And they were in Seattle, which was amazing. It's called IONS. It's the International Association of Near-Death Studies. And it's full of dead people just like me. And it was just great. So they accepted me. And the only thing that I found that was disturbing was that most of them just had, you know, the angels and the gardens and the flowers and the music. And, and I didn't. So I, it took me a long time to find those few people that have written books about hell until I could really kind of figure out what that meant, why I went. And it it took a long time. But basically, the bottom line seems to be those experiences are given to brave people. It's interesting that you use that word and that they are able to absorb what happens and reflect on it and come back with this message to share with others so they don't have to go through what i did so i i, I really think that i am being with those people um, opened me up to a whole lot of new understanding about the afterworld i was um, a cradle catholic and i was just taught certain things i was taught that i would go to hell if i was really bad and i was taught that i would go to purgatory which is like hell, if I did anything bad that needed to be cleansed before I went to heaven. So I bought the concept of hell. I lived my life according to those principles. And so when I died, I wasn't disappointed. So the message basically is God all loving, all forgiving, and he never condemns anybody. The only way you can get to hell is by choosing it. Or manifesting it yourself. And that's the message in a nutshell that I need to bring back and save people a bad, bad experience.
0: And how did you know you needed to bring this message? Do you think before all this happened that you had a purpose in order to spread a message? Because spreading a message is a very hard but powerful thing to do. How did you cultivate that ability to spread that message through your brand? Sort of explain that.
1: I didn't have a choice. What happens is when you get back, it's very, very common for people to hear their what most people think of as is, is your guardian angel, your conscience. You know that little voice that kind of kind of leads you. Uh, when you get back, that is a loud voice, and that voice guides you even when you really don't want to do it. It's insistent and it's gentle and and kind and loving, and you know it's a good voice. It's just that I didn't feel like I was the type of person that could go out and spread messages. I've always been a person who hated public speaking and never liked the spotlight on myself. How was I going to do this? Well, gently, I was taught by going to these IONS meetings and having finally the guts to tell the story in front of all these people. And then to get the reaction of, thank God you told us that. You know, and then this thing about the book it just kept coming into my mind, coming into my mind. And I've always been a writer of stories and and that sort of thing. So I just started playing with it. And then at my last conference for the Ions conference, it was two years ago, I guess, some lady that was publishing books, she had a little table, she just came up and said, You need to write that book. I said, I don't have a publisher. She says, here's my card. So she pushed me along the way, uh, telling me that I had to write the story. And then when the story just about hell and heaven was there, she says, no, 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 you need a lot more words." So then I was forced to go back to the typewriter at a computer. and, And then it was like I was being downloaded with all this information about it was from my family, my deceased family members. They they, they started putting this story together uh, going back generations about how we became religious and spiritual and problems with alcoholism and abuse. And all this got passed down through the generations into mine. And I am who I am because of them. And so the, it, it, the memoir turned into the story of my life, which a lot of people have resonated with. Most people don't say the bad things that happen in their households. It's we don't talk about that behind closed doors. But for me to share what happened, so many people have come forward and said, oh, thank God I'm not the only one. Like now I've been divorced three times. One lady just says, all I needed to hear was you say you had been divorced three times and still got into heaven. She says, it's changed my life. So it's, it's the little things, the human things, that attract people to this message, I think.
0: So who do you think were some specific people that motivated you along the way?
1: My dad, he was in World War II as a fighter pilot. He was about 20. He was the bravest guy I ever knew. And he was shot down over the Philippines in his plane. He had been an atheist. And uh, he thought he knew everything. And so after his plane was starting to catch flames, he he had to land on the beach. And when he hit the sand, it dug, the the wheels dug in and his plane somersaulted three times over the, the sand and landed upside down on him he had had the canopy open so that he could see out since there was oil all over his windshield. And so his head was stuck in the sand. And like they say in in the war, you know, people in fox ha- foxholes are never atheists for long. Well, he said to God, if you're out there, you save me and I will become a Catholic, I swear. And miraculously, three guys had run out of the jungle and pulled the tail of his plane so that he, his head came out of the sand. They they, they cut his, his seatbelt and drug him into the jungle. He'd been shot. He had four fractured vertebrae. His scalp had been torn off with one ear. It was a mess, but he was alive. And miraculously, he got back to Honolulu out of the war. And boy, immediately the family was became Catholic. He was very staunch Catholic. He he died of COVID in, in January.
0: Oh, so sorry.
1: Yeah. Well, you know, once you are on the other side and you see how wonderful it is, it's, it loses. Not only are you not afraid of death anymore, but that's and You really get this homesickness. So dad and I have had plenty of talks over the years about heaven and what he could expect. And he loved to fly, you know, and he he stayed a pilot all through his 30 years in the Navy. So uh, about the second to the last time I saw him, I says, OK, Dad, what are you going to do when you get to heaven? And he says, I'm going to. And darned if a couple of days after he, he passed away, my publicist, who turned out to be a medium, I didn't know much about that at the time, but she could hear people. And my dad came through to her as In a nutshell, she had quite a bit to say, but he said to tell me that the takeoff was bumpy, but he landed safely. So, yeah, it was.
0: So you spoke to a clear audience. That's very interesting.
1: Yeah. Yeah. We were talking about our contract and all of a sudden she started getting messages from him. It it was really, it's really nice. And I, I know he's with me all the time. He wrote the first chapter of my book. And that was cool because he always wanted to write about his his war stories. He never told a soul his whole life. You know, that's just what they did. That, that PTSD, he just carried that along with the pain in his back that never went away. He was just a very brave soul, smart man, great sense of humor.
0: So I could see sort of where you got sort of your disposition from. You got a lot from your father. Yeah. Exactly. Right. That's very great. And... When you were moving forward with this, what were some of the skills you learned along the way?
1: The skills. I think what I learned from being in heaven and being around people who have been there is that I now see life very differently. I, I don't feel like a victim anymore. I used to blame God for things that happened to me that I didn't like. And I would pray fervently uh, to take things away from me. All that's changed from what I've learned from my friends who have been over there and stayed longer than I did, is that we actually choose our lives. We all start off in heaven as one with God and our souls are just little pieces of God. And we choose to come down to earth to learn things, to learn courage, to learn empathy, to learn things and, and to see what it's like to be uh, in a human body with, with all this distractions and stuff. So we also, choose our soulmates to come with. And they, they switch. If you want to come down to earth several times, reincarnation is a real thing. You can do that. But I chose to come down. And so when things happen to me now, I don't blame anybody but myself. I just say, wow, I wonder what the lesson is. What was I thinking? Uh, but I look for the lesson instead of getting angry with somebody else. I, I just point at myself. And I do that with my my partner now he, he he believes the same thing so i was in the hospital last month i had pneumonia again i was took a month to get over double pneumonia And then he went in the hospital and you know he had problems and instead of bemoaning you know oh we're getting older all this stuff keeps happening it's like wow i wonder what the the lessons were and then we kind of sit and think about it you know well I'm a little more patient now Funny thing is, when I was in the hospital, they were doing x rays of my lungs, which are kind of trashed from all the uh, scar tissue after I had the ARDS. But they came in and told me that I, they were th- pretty sure I had a pulmonary embolism. And I said, Does that mean I've got I'm toast written across my forehead or what? And they said, Well, it's not good. You know, we, we might be able to break up that that blood clot, but if it goes to your brain or to your heart, I said, okay. So they left and my friend and I were sitting there and I was thinking and thinking and thinking. And I said, yay. (laughs) And he said, I'm jealous. And that was my reaction to I get to go home. I must've gotten everything done. I get to go home. And I thought, okay, that's cool. So when they came back in, the doctors saw us both talking and laughing. And the doctor says, you don't seem to understand what's going on here. And I says, oh yeah, I do. You don't understand what's going on here. And he says, well, I thought I was going to give you good news. And I says, well, what is it? And he says, you have double pneumonia. And I said, oh, is that all? And he goes, I don't understand this at all. And I says, well, fine. Thank you very much. But I was kind of happy, (laughs) but I guess I'm not through. See how that changes your whole life, just knowing that that sort of thing. Oh, it's just so freeing.
0: And again, you know, that's a great thing because, you know, it's all about cultivating just a positive view on life. You know, and when you consider that perspective, how do you think other people could cultivate the same the same headspace that you have without this near experience? Yeah.
1: Yeah. I'm here to tell you, you don't have to do that. I would suggest anybody. To get a hold of ions, Iands.org. There are so many wonderful, inspiring stories of people who have been there and are back. And and uh, I mean, we're talking neurosurgeons and attorneys. These aren't just people like me as a property manager. These are people that know science and they and it's it's proven that now that there is an afterlife. So when you hear these stories often enough, you you kind of start to gel with it. It's an osmosis that, that gives you hope and, and joy. And it just automatically changes you so that you don't have to. It's like, you don't have to go to school to learn to be a brain surgeon. You can just, you know, you just accept this, you know, the the biggest, the biggest stumbling block I have found has been religion. I mean, I was a Catholic for a thousand years, it seems like, but there's too much about religion that is exclusive, and too many rules and things that are made up by people, not God. And most people that come back from the other side can't do religion anymore. They are, they're spiritual. They know that God loves them, and he, he, he it's unconditional love. And you know and all you got to do is you be. Loving and kind. This is what I was told be loving, kind, merciful, forgiving, encouraging, grateful, non judgmental, and useful. And the other thing everybody comes back with is they're told to be loving and kind. You know, you love God above all things, you love your neighbor as yourself. It's the golden rule, it's simple, it gets complicated with religion. I can't tell you how many people from the Bible Belt (laughs) try and tell me. Try and tell me I had I did not have the experience I had because none of that can be true. You know, Ephesians nine, chapter four, line six. Well, this is my experience, and I respect I respect where everybody is. I'm not trying to trying to convert anybody. I'm just sharing
0: what I know. And when you're sharing this knowledge, what do you think are some of the best success stories you've had when teaching people about this stuff? Do you have any sort of Students or? My students, I usually
1: meet them on airplanes. I think that's, I've got an airplane ministry. I go down and see my mom and family about once a month now that COVID's over and stay with them about 10 days. And then I fly home. So it's about a two hour flight. And I would say over 50% of the time, uh, either on the way down or back, somebody will sit right next to me, total stranger. I'm reading my Kindle and they'll they'll start talking to me. And once they start talking to me, that's my trigger to pay attention, to be kind. And every time they unload some sort of something on their their heart, you know, one lady said she just came from her mom's funeral. Another person said they were getting a divorce. Another one said they were having problems with their children. And I just listen. And then it always mm-hmm. comes down to my near-death experience. And they just listen completely wrapped. And at the end of that time, they always at least... Tell me, I don't know what I would have done if I didn't run into you today. Or I i can't believe you just gave me the answer to something I have been really worrying about. And I've had two different ladies on two different occasions walk me down to the baggage claim so they could introduce me to their husband and get their baggage and give me a hug and say, you know, this wonderful angel of a woman just told me these marvelous things. Wait till you hear so that's the feedback one by one to have people say it, it's made a difference to them.
0: And when you've been doing all of this, do you think there were any, when you were growing your own brand, what was your best way of reaching out to people to get your name known? I know you went on radio stations and podcasts, but how did you cultivate that ability to give your story to other people? Did you practice it? Did you learn it? How did you begin to develop this sense of confidence in your story? Because a near-death experience is very fascinating, but it still takes skill to sort of portray that story in a way that's genuine and real to you. Sort of elaborate on it.
1: Well, like I said, I've always been a storyteller and a writer, so they picked the right person for that my publisher uh, said it was going to be tough to get things out there because of COVID. I couldn't go speak. I couldn't go to libraries and do book signings. It was it was a real challenge, but it turned out to be a blessing because once I just, uh, I don't even know how, who was the first person that contacted me. I, I My book went on Amazon and I started getting reviews and then you know, one person saw me and put me on their podcast and then then two more. And I've done over 40 in the last year. I've, I've still got like 10 booked ahead of time. They just get sent to me. It's nothing. I, I have to show up. I've always been told that. That's what God always whispers that in my ear. You show up. I'll take care of the rest. And it just happens.
0: And when you do this a lot, how was it like publishing your first book? Are you self-published? Or do you work with a different type of community to get it published and sort of go into that whole gist of publishing your first book and how you wrote it and so forth?
1: It's, it's really not the same with most people. Like I said, I, I met the at the conference. She gave me her cards. She said, you need to write a book. Give me a call and i did and i was her first customer she had been working for a big publishing company and decided to go out on her own so she gave me a lot of attention she knew people that said okay you you know we're going to put these kind of hashtags on your and i yeah, they just said do this and i did it and then um, started a website got on facebook linkedin, uh, facebook, LinkedIn. LinkedIn. I, I i started a A sharing group on ions for people that have had near-death experiences. And little by little, it snowballed. As far as writing the book, she told me at first that I had to write the story. And when I handed it back to her, she said, that's only 10,000 words. You need 60,000 words. And I said, what am I going to write about? She says, your life. Oh God, I, don't I don't care. Really it's put me sixty thousand words. So I found a computer and I thought, ah. but I just started typing, and I started typing about my family, my birth family, and then I started talking about my grandparents. Then I started getting these downloads in the form of inspiration from dead relatives. That's just what it was. And they'd wake me up in the middle of the night and say, don't forget the time Uncle Harry did such and such. I'd have to get up and make notes, go back to bed. And the next day I'd sit down again. And I wrote for months and months. I kept getting then It was 20,000. Then I had 30. And then I had 40. And then I had 50. And then I, I just kept going. And then we finally got an editor to go through and start at the top, and start, you know, saying, Well, we this needs to go here and this. And I kept typing and I kept typing, and finally, I got to like 60,149 words. And I thought, I'm done. <laughs> My fingers are shot. I it went to the editor, she put did very little to change the story. She just, you know, I didn't put a period here or I wrote whatever. She just m- magically put this together and if you're doing your own book out there and I guess this is called self publishing because I didn't get picked up by, you know, one of those big publishers, but hardly anybody does anymore. So you better learn about self publishing, get a good, get a good um, publisher that's small enough. They can give you uh, a lot of attention. Get a, a good editor is the most important thing you can have. It makes it professional looking, keeps you from being redundant. And then you know, she said, okay, we're ready to give it to Amazon. Amazon. And we yeah. put it on there. And then we did a bunch of advertising. They took care of that. And then I thought I was through. <laughs> I thought, okay, you write the book, you put it out there, and ta-da. Well, no, this is a full-time job. I work six hours a day probably on the book the bookkeeping of keeping track of Amazon and Barnes and Noble and all these other people and and seminars I have to go to and learning about GoDaddy. And it's a, it's a full-time job. Um, But that's the price of getting your book promoted. That's just what you have to do. You have to show up and keep learning about things. And, you know, COVID is over. I'm hoping to be able to go to the libraries. I'm hoping to go speaking with Ions. It was just on a panel for the annual uh, event, so that that put me out there. I do sharing groups. I do. I did a webinar webinar last night for Ions, and that's an international company. So there's a lot of publicity that comes with going up the ladder there by being of service to the organization that you get well-known. And because my story is only about, I said something like six to 16% of NDEs are the distressing kind. So people want to hear about that. I mean, almost everybody that's Catholic is afraid to go to hell. I know I was. And so if I can teach them how not to do that, to not believe in that, Concept because it's it's not true. We do not have to go to hell, and God will not judge us. That is just something people need to know about. And you know what? I'll give you this too. The other day I was speaking of books, I was doing my books, and I put a lot of money into publishing this book by myself, and I've gotten very little back in royalties. So I was kind of muttering to God about this all the time I did and all that. And he said, Kathy. Near death experiencers are not sent back to earth to become rich and famous. They are sent back to be the new apostles and to be a witness to all they have seen and heard. So that's the bottom line from where I'm coming from. I'm not in this for the money. And I don't, you know, if you're gonna if you're going in for it for the money, unless you've got it, you're in it for another reason. I'm 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 not. It's just I need to, I need to share my message. Uh, How other people get successful, it's hard. All you got to do is walk into a Barnes and Noble. Good Lord, I did that about two weeks ago and look around at all the billions of books in there. There's millions that go out every year. And I don't know how people get to the top of a list. There's a lot of book clubs and a lot of stuff online um, where people, they buy each other's books, a lot of them. And you got to do it because you love it. If you're in it just for the money, just like any, any other job, if you're just in it for the money, there's not going to be any pleasure in it. The pleasure for me is having somebody read the book and or see me on a podcast and say, wow, thank you. I really needed to hear that. It's making a difference. It's not all about me.
0: And why do you think it's important to focus more on the passion and less on the money? I hear a lot of successful people say it, but... In some people's eyes, or in most people's eyes, that doesn't really make too much sense. Can you sort of explain that a bit more? Because it's a true philosophy, but it's a very hard one for a lot to understand as well.
1: Oh, yeah, I know. I had my own business for, uh, 11 years, the property management business, and I started with $100. And then 11 years later, uh, which was a long time ago, I sold it for 90,000. So to me, that was a huge thing. That was something I did without any, I had one year of college. You know, this was, I felt that was wonderful and it was because I helped a lot of people, but I was so involved with the money. I mean, I, I did, I helped people for a living and that's what gave me joy, but I was always worried about the money. Um, that takes the joy away. It's, it's hard. We're all here because we, we chose to do this. So if we we're choosing to do that, to learn something. And what I learned is um, there was something more important to me. I had more of a purpose than just making money for me. It's about giving money back. It's about helping other people along the way up the ladder. That's where the joy comes in. You'll never have enough money. You'll never have enough money to say, that's it. I don't need any more. It's like a hole in the soul. It it can't get filled up. The only way I can be filled up is with service and, and, and the joy that comes from that. And unless you've tried it, you won't know. You might try with something small like, uh, say, okay, 10% of what I make, I'm going to give to the homeless, or I'm going to clean out my closet and take it to the homeless shelter. Doing something like that kind of grounds you. It puts you back in humanity, not just at the top of this ladder that's waving back and forth precariously. Because you know what? When you die, you're not going to care about that. Believe me, when you're on the other side, money is, is nothing. It, what you, what you, There's no judgment. There's just a life review. But what you will most be asked to show is how did you treat other people? How much did you love? They will never ask to see your tax forms.
0: And in the world we live in today, how does one treat other people with kindness?
1: That's pretty simple, actually, because it's small things, I find. When I got back And when I was in the hospital, I was in a wheelchair for a long time. And so that became like a thing for me. When I was in the hospital, nobody even looked at me in the wheelchair. They averted their eyes. I was less than human. I was scary to children. I mean, one little girl cried because I smiled at her, but I was so thin. I looked like a skeleton and it frightened her. I mean, being invisible is terrible. So for me, when I see someone that that is in a wheelchair, I'll go out of my way to say, hey, you know, have a nice day or what's happening. And the look on their face is, oh my God, I'm not invisible. And it's a big deal with homeless people, with with ill people, people that are marginal, to just be kind, all you have to say is hi, morning. And just to see their humanity light back up. It's that's, you know, Jesus came for the poor people that Uh, and those people chose to be poor for this incarnation so they could learn things and they could be there to teach me to be kind and to be patient and to be giving. And we're all helping each other here. We're learning it's not all about ourselves. I I keep going back to that, but it's true.
0: And when we continue to do all this, why is it that some people struggle with this? struggle taking in your information? Have you ever dealt with people that may have had more obstacles along the way? Because it mustn't have been easy to convince, you know, very stubborn and hard-headed people about this either. Like, I understand the majority of people, but what about the people that didn't really believe what you said? How did you deal with that?
1: Well, that's interesting. Um, The first people who didn't believe me were my parents and my family (laughs) and my doctors, they told me it was uh, the drugs. It was a dream. It'll all go away, and that's what I got from everybody for ten years. So I had to keep it inside, and that was hard. Now, I don't argue with people. I've all I can do is share my experience. I do like talking to atheists, though, <laughs> when they try and tell me that there's nothing on the other side and that, that that I'm wrong and all that other stuff. And I just I just calmly and kindly say you have got such a wonderful surprise coming. And just let it go like that. Because I do. Because if we came down to earth knowing everything, that's cheating. I mean, we would never learn anything if we didn't have challenges. I mean, anybody that reads my book can see I had plenty of challenges. And that's just why we're here. If you Don't want to come back a second time to Earth, or maybe this is your third or fourth or fifth trip already. I'm learning all kinds of strange things that uh, I never heard about by hanging out with these people that go to other dimensions and other planets and that stuff. Our little human brains can't begin to fathom the other side reality of the uh, you know, past the universe, all it, that's out there. There's no way for us to get all that in there. So uh, again, I'm just here to, to to lay it out, say, here's an alternative to what you've been believing. I think it's important for people who have been like myself in one religion all their life, from the time they were, you know, five years old, to maybe s- step back and look at what they believe and what they've been taught as an adult and see what makes sense, what doesn't seem to make sense anymore, and to pick and choose that which is true to you. Uh, I think the people that, that are most stuck are the ones that are in this religion that will not allow them to step outside the box. It's all about what's written down, and there's no room for spiritual growth but that's that's just me.
0: You mentioned something very interesting because, in a way, being religious can actually be can actually put you in an even worse position than being an atheist when it comes to mm-hmm. connecting spiritually. And this is a very unpopular opinion. And if you could kind of hone in on this more, I'd be very interested to know.
1: Well, I I, I did a, a podcast. It must have been in the Bible Belt. I don't know because there was like 100, a yeah. replies by the time I you know got my you know makeup off, ready to go to bed. And I thought, wow, that's a lot of people. So I'm going down here, and it's all negative. I think out of 136, I had six people that said, go, Kathy, I really liked your message. And the rest of them were telling me, oh, my God, the devil was involved. And you should have called on Jesus. And Jesus is your Lord and Savior. And, and, uh, you know, you were in that terrible place. You must have been a terrible person. I mean, a hundred of those, that'll kind of ruin your day. And I thought, no, no. If I got to six people... It's worth it, and if I, it, it won't do me any good to argue with this pe- these people. I, I just had one person that I, I couldn't help but say, um, they they'd given two really nasty things that they said that about me, you know, having to do with the devil and, and and not loving Jesus. And I said, you know what, we're here to be on earth to be loving and kind and non-judgmental. Your comments were none of that. Just you know, think about it. They're the most judgmental. Religious people are the most judgmental. I was one, you know, for all seventy well, something years. So I, I know I don't want to be judgmental on them, but they're on their own path. I don't have to save everybody. Jesus didn't get a hold of anybody. Everybody, and and for those listening, Jesus is my best friend and has been since I was probably five years old. Uh, I just. I just believe that Jesus came to show me how to live and how to die and to trust in God no matter what. And I've got some real issues with other things that um, supposedly he's thinking and doing because I don't agree with them.
0: Do you believe it's a little bit isolated on the top? I always notice whenever it comes to this, there's always some type of pyramid, you know? There's always going to be a few people that got that key knowledge, but the masses never really get that knowledge. And it's always like that. Yeah. Why do you think that is?
1: Well, because that's why we're here. <laughs> we're if we were perfect, we'd all still be in heaven. People choose to come here. And, and like I said, if, if you know uh that all that you believe is not true, what's the challenge? That's uh when when we're sent back, a lot of times people are up there for what seems like a long time. There's There's no time up there. It's just this eternal now. But they're shown the Akashic records and they're shown this library and they could just absorb all the knowledge of the universe. And their heads were just swimming with all this wonderful information. And they woke up out of their NDEs and it was all gone. Because it's A, our human brains can't contain that much knowledge. And B, that's not the reason we're here. We're learning. And if we Go back, you know, we don't get what we want done while we're here. You can come back and do it again. I, for one, am not real crazy about coming back to this planet. It's hard, you know, so I might just find my dad and just go fly around the universe with him. For- you know, you kind of have to lighten up. Everybody takes everything too seriously. And God's got a terrific sense of humor. And um, I think that's another thing I would I would suggest. People take things too seriously. It's not necessary, and it takes all the joy out of life. It's so hard to be kind and and uplifting and helpful to other people if you're being beaten down all the time by this box of rules. I, I feel sorry for people like that.
0: And when you reach this stage in life, did you sort of change the people around you as you began to grow too? Because I have a feeling you know, all of your old friends kind of split off and then a whole new set of people came into your life. Am I correct?
1: Yeah. Yeah. I I, I was going to be on a show last night that was really going to be special to me. And I emailed my uh, sister and my three best friends and nobody watched it. You know, that hurts. I thought, well, crud, if they were going to be on some show uh, and featured and on a, a well-thought you know, well thought of platform, I'd watch them. So there's something that, that alienates you from, we well, you know there's a, there's a, some sort of uh sentence in the Bible that says the prophet is never honored in his own land. And I think that's very true. They look at me, you know, like Jesus was a carpenter for all those years. And so now he's the Messiah or whatever, you know, nobody bought it. They said, nah, that's, that's Mary's son. He's not that. So that's kind of, I think what happens is when you completely change who you are, what's important, there's, there's not that magnetic energy that used to bind you together with those people. So there's a certain isolation that is necessary as part of it and it's not fun and i'm sorry you know I, I don't like to lose friends i don't like them to look at me like i'm nuts um i don't have i like my family saying don't talk about that you know i i don't like what what you've become in, as far as religion i don't want to talk to you about that that's hard but that's the, why ians people are my family now and uh, i'm very lucky to have a partner who had a you know, had uh, three heart attacks. So he's he's on the same page. He's very supportive of me. But it, yeah, it's lonely. And it's yeah, not you know, it's, it's somewhere. I don't know. It's hard.
0: Yeah, but you know, yeah, you really have to ask yourself, though, are those people that are giving you those problems really happy about their own lives either? Because again, you know, you have to have pain in order to give pain, you know. If you have kindness within you, that's all you could give to others. So, right. yeah, you know, just know if someone is giving you problems out there, they're probably feeling those same things.
1: Right. And that's why we have to be kind. We know that. And so that, that's going that extra mile to be kind and understanding and nonjudgmental and patient. All those things that we know better. It's almost like you're an adult and the rest of them are kids. I don't know. I don't want that to sound demeaning at all. But... um right you know once you're you're in God's presence, you can't be changed I mean back to the way you were it's It's impossible
0: and when you saw all this and when you had this experience, how did you feel physically and mentally when you first woke up? Did you feel like a different woman
1: from the coma you mean Yes. I was scared. I was so scared. And I was so angry. I was still afraid that the demons would come and get me and take me back to hell. I didn't know why I'd been kicked out. I was angry at my friend for telling me I had to go back. I couldn't move. I weighed 86 pounds. I couldn't move anything but one finger and blink. And I was told I had too much left to do. I was frustrated. I was not happy. And it took me a long time to get over that. It was six months before I was civil to anybody. My poor mother, she says, oh, Kathy, we're so glad you're back. We had a prayer chain going around the world to bring you back. And thank God I had something in my throat and I couldn't talk that ventilator because months later, I mean, I, I, I was still complaining. I says, mom, if I ever get sick like that again, please don't pray for me. She says, honey, don't worry. I won't. <laughs> I mean, that's how I felt. And I felt that way for 10 years. Why? Why? Why me? Why am I so screwed up? What happened? So that was part of my process. It was not bingo. I've been to heaven and I'm, you know, I've got wings. I know it was a, it was a very distressing, very distressing for a long time, but now I know why. So I can save people from doing that themselves. Now that's the greatest gift I can give somebody is to let them know they don't have to go to hell. That was, that was self-imposed. It's big. It's big.
0: And when people hear about this, what do you think is the best incentive for people to have their ideal life? Should it be ruled by fear or should it be ruled by positivity? Because in my eyes, fear is a negative thing. Oh yeah. Positivity it's- is a powerful thing. Which one do you think is more powerful?
1: Oh, well, fear is destructive and that's got power, but positivity its that's the only way I can be anymore. I, 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 If I get around a movie or a a, a person or a friend that's being negative, I have to tell them I'm going to have to leave unless you stop that. What you manifest, what you tell yourself, like my friend says, oh, my back is killing me. I said, don't say that. Your mind and your body are very literal. You should only really concentrate on positivity, on positive thoughts, Every word out of your mouth, you got to watch it. It's very, very powerful.
0: And I definitely agree with that. You know, a positive mind is a powerful mind. And how do you think, well, well, you sort of explained it a little bit, but how do you think a person can sort of cultivate this positive headspace in their day-to-day lives?
1: You know, everybody throws in meditation. And for the longest time, I didn't even know what that was. But when I realized it was just getting quiet and just letting your mind relax, your body relax. And and if a thought comes into your mind, just don't even look at it. Just deep breathing and just getting in touch with who you are. You are not all this chaos that's going on around you. You are not your job. You are not your spouse. You just have to find yourself and get quiet and no, it's all its all good. It's all good. It's all good. It's all going to work for good. And believe that. But I have to stop myself several times a day and go into that space. And I also know that all my, oh, there's so many uh, spirits with me all the time, with everybody. You're never alone. You've always got a crowd of angels and guides and, and deceased loved ones with you all the time is being aware you gotta you gotta get out of that box and go get on some podcasts like yours and open your mind up instead of sitting in that I've got a relative fear is her middle name oh I can't be around her you know everything is is dire and it's dangerous and it's I don't know I think it was the way she was raised to alcoholic parents who were a little on the nutty side. She didn't have a chance, but yeah, we've got to be proactive.
0: How does one be proactive?
1: By saying, okay, I'm tired of being fearful all the time. I'm going to do some reading on it. I'm going to get a therapist. I'm going to go look at a podcast or stop crowding myself with, with murder mysteries and, and uh, you know, science fiction where people get murdered. Stop looking at that stuff as if it's normal. It's not. We really need to get that dark energy out of our lives, out of our minds, out of our spirits. It's very seductive but so destructive.
0: Mhm. I agree. You know, and maybe instead, you know, watch some motivational people. You know, I look at Mother Teresa, yeah. I look at Gandhi, I look at those types of people regularly now. Mm-hmm. And it changes your headspace. It does. Yeah. What do you look at? Necessary. I Necessary. like the
1: Ted talks. TED talks. You know, they're five minutes long, and they're so inspiring. And you can you can pick up something. And another thing I do is uh, the Dry Comedy Club. It's on the I don't know somewhere on the internet, but it's funny comedy that doesn't have any crudeness to it. It doesn't belittle other people. It's just funny, and laughing is so good for us. It you know endorphins and. It lightens your mood. It it lets you know that things aren't that serious. Uh, so comedy and TED talks, and I like to go through the um, on my Facebook and all that, and, and see the funny cartoons or the ins- inspirational ones, things with dogs in them, anything that makes you feel joyful. Surround yourself with that. It's not hard and it's free.
0: And what what do you think is? So let's. Let me look back at your whole entire life. If you had a younger self, right? And she came back and she asked you, what am I supposed to do in my life? How am I supposed to live a quality life? What would you tell her?
1: I would tell her to quit listening to what everybody else says you should do. You learn to think for yourself a little earlier in your life and what feels right for you. Don't just do it because other people tell you. I think that's that's a big mistake that puts such shackles on us. And it's very hard to break out of the older you get.
0: And would that be the same advice you would tell other people as well?
1: Again, I, I I try not to tell people anything. If they ask me something, I will share it with them. I think the hardest thing about this is keeping my mouth shut. Because uh, I, I want to jump on people sometimes. <laughs> I grab them by the throat and say, you are wrong. The only time I really did that... And I didn't really grab him by the throat. But when I was first back and I was going to church, we had this lovely new priest and, and he was young and he was positive and he was friendly. And oh, it was such a relief not to have this Helen Brimstone stuff. But as he he stayed for five, six, seven years, he started buying in to the program. I don't know if the, the archbishop was getting on his case or what, but I started meeting him outside after church and saying, you know, that that's not right. And the time I really got on him is he was talking, there was little kids in the front. I don't know if they were doing first communion or what, but he was talking to them and he says, you know what? You have to obey your parents and you have to be nice to your brother and sister because if you don't, you're going to make God cry. I came unglued. I screamed out there afterwards and I says, you cannot distort little children's minds like that first you give them the power to make god cry by punching their sister and and then you tell them that oh it's wrong i says quit filling their head with that crap well that was he started ducking me after church after that so i (laughs) i stopped going (laughs) but yeah it's just hard it's hard I don't want to be taken for somebody in some religion that's knocking on doors and trying to cram things down people's throats. That's not what I'm here for. I'm here to answer questions and be supportive.
0: I'm assuming you're not a big fan of the Jehovah Witnesses.
1: I <laughs> um, you know they're dedicated people. I don't knock anybody's religion if it brings them closer to God. That's their path. I, I have all people cannot tell somebody else what their path should be because i know how that feels and if that's their that's what they chose to do in this life and that's their path no i don't make fun of i mean we all make fun of everybody in a in a kind sort of way I, but i mean like the catholics my gosh how many jokes start with a rabbi and a priest and a you know hair cutter went into a bar we have to lighten up We do. We have to, don't lose your sense of humor. It's not worth it. Believe me, that was the only thing I didn't find in hell. There was no sense of humor. And that's what made it doubly awful for me.
0: Now, are there any final things you would like to say to the audience to end off this great story? Anything you would like to get off your chest or explain to anyone?
1: Well, like I say, I've got written on my cards, on on my book, on my... Everything that is what God told me we need to do every day. That's what I do. I get up and I look at my picture of Jesus and I say, Dear God, help me to be loving and kind, merciful, forgiving, encouraging, grateful, non judgmental, and useful. And that's how I started. And so when things come up during the day, I think, ah. So that's what I would share.
0: Very, very good. And when you speak of all this again stress it again follow a religious lifestyle or follow just a loving lifestyle which is more important
1: spiritual is probably the best but that's for me and that's what works for me i just see the the detriment that can come from too strict a religion that tries to control people with man-made rules
0: a spiritual lifestyle all right well okay i'm jimbo and this is the Jimbo Parish show. Thank you again everyone for listening. All right. Thank you for listening to the Jimbo Parish show.